Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, this is LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today with me in the studio, I have a very special guest, Miss Kara Michelle Pearson, who is the owner of Lilac and Indigo. We're going to be talking about, well, I don't know what we're going to talk about yet, because I don't know what our labor of love is, but I know at some point we're going to talk about a little bit of self-care and taking care of yourself. So welcome, Kara. Thank you. Hello. Hello. So we're going to just go ahead and jump in. Awesome. Um, customary to my fashion, I'm going to start by asking, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is creating space. And through Lilac and Indigo, I say making more space for creativity, rest, and self-care. But I like to make space in all kinds of ways. Okay. So for listeners out there who are kind of like, what in the world does that mean? Talk Mm -hmm. to us about what it means to make space. Absolutely. So for me... My own journey with overworking myself and not taking care of myself um, really brought me to this space where I felt like I wasn't um, holding space for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I started to really understand that really being intentional about taking care of myself and slowing down and resting was what was going to help me kind of reach my goals and to just have a better life, honestly. And so for me, making space for others looks like um, meditation classes, pop-up wellness rooms, and retreats. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very intentional about um, the details. Do we have tea available? Do I have, um, you know, inviting decor, creating space for people to do creativity, creating space for people to do meditation? Mm -hmm. So... Okay, I'm thinking which 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 direction I want to go first because yeah. you said a lot just in that little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll come back to that, and I will say so when you talk about like um, pop up spaces mm-hmm. and things like that, tell us a little bit about what that looks like and how you know how that works and who who you do this for that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So um, the pop up wellness rooms that I do um, are really just born out of this like desire to basically bring cozy to people. Mm. Um, So I go into organizations. So I've worked with Cincinnati Public Schools. um, I've worked with Miami University. So I go into these spaces and I kind of flip them around. Like I'll turn off the lights, bring my own soft lighting. Um, I will bring um, coloring books. I will um, have space for people to create their own essential oil blends um, and a space for people to rest. And it's kind of like this, this opportunity for people to experience um, just time for themselves in a way that they probably haven't done it before, but within their own organization. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so I, I've seen, you know, some of your spaces and um, they're awesome. Thank like you, you walk in and especially if you're used to a 
particular room or space within an organization looking and feeling the same way you walk in and you're almost like you get transported to another place like exactly. you know bringing the spa to you or yes. different things like that so i find that to be very awesome so i want to go back and talk about this idea of workaholicism mm. so you you know you said you self-declared that you kind of were a workaholic i am a recovering workaholic a recovering so. workaholic <laughs> i talk about my recovery in many areas all the time yes. and so I think that's a good place to spend a little time because some people kind of self-diagnose themselves as workaholics and some people do not. And so I frequently find myself having conversations and I've done a couple of videos on this idea of the grind. You know, I working to exhaustion without rest and self-care has not in a lot of communities and cultures been framed as the danger that it is, but instead has been given this badge of honor. So, you know, I don't have a nine to five. I have a sun up to sun down, you know, mm-hmm. grind till I die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of these things that for me are like, not okay, people <laughs> not listen to you. Not okay. But there is a mentality and a culture and things that come with this. Now, my perspective is uh, oftentimes it's a trauma response that people are just not seeing as a trauma response. But when you talk about, you know, yourself as a recovering workaholic, how, how did you come to identify as such? How did you know you had fallen into this cycle or pattern of behavior? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it all really kind of started in high school. I went to a college prep high school and you know, in that environment, you're just encouraged to, you know, take all the honors classes, do all the things, do all the activities so that you can look good for colleges. And um, there was just this culture of like you succeed, like there was no other option. Um, And so it seems like it was normal. And I took that with me to college. Um, You know, in college, I had three jobs. I had an internship. I had a job at a hotel and, um, you know, odd jobs on the side in addition to my classes. So um, I always felt like that hard work was something that I needed. And for a while, I think it was also kind of like being in the survival mode, mm-hmm. um, feeling like I have to work this hard in order to survive. Um, but then I kind of took that with me and it just became a way of life. And then I really realized that it was a problem um, probably after I graduated from college and I actually couldn't really find a job in my field. Um, And so I just had this time to rest and um, in that time where I wasn't working, um, I actually found like this temporary job at, at a factory and I was working 12-hour shifts from, like, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Mm. And then, and, and I was like, oh, well, I can still, you know, I can still probably do something during the day. And I just, like, I got to this point where I was, like, freaking out. Like, I was snapping at people. And if you know me, I'm not a type of person to yell at people. So I was, like, snapping. Mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't eating. I was, you know, just running myself ragged. Mm-hmm. Because I was grinding, yeah. you know. What would you say were contributing factors along the way that kept that mentality going? 
people would encourage it. Yeah. And I, I think especially um, as a black woman, mm-hmm. I think there's often this um, narrative that is perpetuated that, you know, black women get shit done. Mm-hmm. You know, if no one else is going to do it, black women say, fuck it, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they say. It's yes. real. And so um, I I think that people will encourage me like, oh, like your work ethic is, you know, crazy or yes. girl, you're so strong. Like you're so focused and, you, you know, um, so that I think definitely plays a part of it. Um, but I definitely think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were talking about the trauma response, because I think, um, you know, through that time that I was working so hard, there were a lot of things going on in my personal life and going on inside me that. I didn't have to deal with if I was working. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I was producing, that meant, oh, well, it's cool because I did this thing, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And so, <clears throat> I mean, when I say trauma response too, uh, depending on a person who's listening to this and whether or not they've heard other of my um, podcast segments, but I talk about developmental and relational trauma. And so it's not necessarily the response to this really bad thing that happened to me. It could be, but I'm talking developmental. I'm talking relational. I'm talking about the messages that we get sent when we're children. I'm talking about kind of the very foundation of who we begin to know that we are by looking at other people. I'm talking about the templates that we live our lives based on. And whether or not there was someone directly in our household who said, you will work all day, never stop. Sometimes that happens. But when you talk about kind of this uh, stereotype or trope of the black woman, so all of these things inform our templates, media, um, social media, books we read, people and what they say, the cultural, you know, the cultural footprint that we are surrounded by, all of that impacts. And so I asked the question, sure that the answer would be something like what you said, people encouraged it. And when we don't have people in our lives who actually take a moment and say, hey, like, are you hydrated? (laughs) Have you eaten today? Um, When was the last time you took a day off? When have you rested? If we don't have those kind of people Mm -hmm. in our lives, but instead we have people who are either neutral and don't say anything at all, but more likely they're encouraging, go on girl, you are so strong, Mm -hmm. your work ethic. And to be fair, I don't think these people have malicious intent, Mm -hmm. but I think their definitions and their perceptions of what those things look like have come from the same pits of relational trauma that ours have. Mm -hmm. And so... You had to have an unfortunate, quote unquote, unfortunate event that helped you slow down. You were unable to find employment. And so it kind of disrupted this cycle in a way that you had no control over. I'm wondering what advice would you give to a person who may be listening and saying, that sounds like me. Like I, I do that. I work a lot. What advice would you have to them about the process of starting to slow down and take care of themselves? Um, I definitely think um, spending time in stillness, um, reconnecting with what it means to feel your breath, um, and start to feel your body because I think, and that's one of the things I love about your work so much is that you talk about embodiment. 
Um, and I, I believe that when you can kind of reconnect to your body, you can start to feel those signs when, and start to feel when you're burning out inside your body. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's part of it. A lot of that workaholism for me was mental. Like It was like, got to do this, got to do this. And I wasn't paying attention to my body. Mm-hmm. When my body was giving me signs, you know, my ankles were hurting and, you know, um, I wasn't eating and, you know, things, you know, my skin was breaking out and things like that. But no, nah, I got I to gotta get this done. So just reconnecting to your body, I think, is a great first step. And stillness is a great way to do that. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know if there's an episode I've had yet where I have not talked about reconnecting to the body. Absolutely, It it is essential. It is important. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Our bodies hold so much wisdom Mm -hmm. and they communicate with us all the time. Mm -hmm. We have just learned to um, ignore it so long that the language that our body speaks, we become so unfamiliar with that we don't realize what it's saying to us. Mm -hmm. And then even Mm -hmm. when we do realize it's talking, We just push it aside because we have to get it done. Now, I think things that also contribute to um, this, this, this grind, if you will, is kind of some of the mentalities we come with. So a person who has a scarcity mindset or come from um, a place of lack in just uh, resources in general is more prone to go into this. I have to grind because it does feel like survival. So I do want to highlight that it's not it's not judgment because mm-hmm. I, too, was very much, you know, in this this frame of workaholism. Mine um, was less mental. You know, I got to do this. I got to do this because of some other reason. It legitimately was if I don't do it, it does not get done. Mm-hmm. You know, I found myself in a place of survival at a very young age And then I went into a relationship that reinforced that because I didn't have support. And so like survival, like food on table, staying where you live Mm -hmm. was predicated on me making it happen Mm -hmm. regardless of what I felt like. And those were the external things I had to do. Then I had to come home and quote, take care of home. Mm -hmm. And so I put, I, my, my life functioning, it wasn't functional, but it was functioning the way that it was in order to maintain that functioning. I had to do it all. So that started to put me in this position of got to do, got to do, got to do. And you know what? I will get it done. Mm -hmm. Like there is never something that comes before me. And I think, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. I just think this is going to be exhausting, but I will get it done. But I also can look back at how how that's cost me emotionally, spiritually, Mm -hmm. physically, um, mentally. Uh, So I definitely get that. So it's not in judgment, but it is when we're disconnected from our bodies, which it becomes easier to disconnect to not feel all of that, Mm -hmm. to just go neck up and stay in your head. And realize that you can do, you can do, but you said something so important. If I sit in stillness and reconnect to my body, then I got to feel all that. So what would you say to a person who's like, okay, this sounds like a good idea. They try to sit in stillness, they start to reconnect, and then they start feeling all of this stuff that doesn't feel pleasant. What what would you say to a person who's experiencing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, um, I found that having you know a support system around me was Uh key having people that were going to um reinforce my self-care um that was key 
also when you start feeling those things in your body to give yourself some grace and to sit with those feelings um and if you can put together like a self-care team, I think that's awesome too. So if you have a therapist that you can talk to, um, if you don't have access to a therapist, maybe following some therapists online. Um, I think that that's a great way to start picking up some tips and um, tools that you can use to actually work through a lot of the, those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, you cannot heal what you cannot feel. Absolutely. And so I know I professionally and personally work with a lot of people who um, who don't want to feel um, and who blame me when they start to feel. Um <laughs> I just did a side out of my husband, the producer, because <laughs> uh, he's one of those people. But it's real. It's like, hey, before you started with all this crap, I didn't feel any of this. And now mm. I feel it. And so there is an acknowledgement that it doesn't, quote unquote, feel good, but it's not helpful to not feel it either. So right. the example I use is a person who does not experience physical pain or has a higher threshold for physical pain is at greater risk of more severe injury and um, disease than a person who does. Because if I cut myself, but I don't have um, a threshold to experience pain like other people, I don't realize that I've cut myself. It it didn't hurt, so I didn't feel it, and I keep going on. Mm-hmm. Well, then that cut gets exposed to all kinds of dirt and <laughs> It gets potentially infected. And if I'm not experiencing that, then I'm going around until something halts me, until my ability to walk is stunted or I notice I'm bleeding all over the place. And then it's like, well, how long has this been here? And and then the attempts to make it feel better, if I can't feel the pain, I don't know where to, where to direct my attention and intervention. Mm-hmm. And the same happens emotionally. If we don't experience the pain, then we say, I'm fine. You're not fine, Mm -hmm. right? When we look at the devastating things that have happened to so many people, a loss, a traumatic event, and people say, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, I think what that means is I can still do the things that I was able to do before, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you're fine. And so many of us think that being able to continue on the similar path of doing means that our being is fine. And that's not necessarily mm, the case. Yes. <clears throat> so, yes. So how do we check in with our being, not our doing? Our doing mm. is not always the best uh, reflection of how we're how we're being. And so we ask people all this time, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. But how many times mm. do we stop and ask a person, how are you being? Absolutely. That's a whole different discussion because yeah. people are doing just fine, mm-hmm. but how are they being? Not so much. Mm-hmm. And so I love just this idea of sitting in stillness and just starting the process of reconnecting with these feelings. Mm-hmm. What then begins to happen is you know where to point your attention. Absolutely. And so this is helpful for the people who are experiencing it, but I really hope this is starting to resonate with people who are support people for others Mm -hmm. because we have a tendency not to want to see people in pain. So when we see people in pain, one of the first things we think is, or we do is how do I, how do I minimize their pain? How do I help them feel better? Well, you may not be helping them feel better. You just may be helping them not feel pain, Mm -hmm. which is stopping them from being able to direct their attention to where it needs to be. Sadness is not our enemy. Mm. Pain is not our enemy. It is a gift. 
right? And because we have this false narrative of pain, we start knocking out pain the time a child is born. Oh, you have a slight headache? Medicate it. And I've said this before, when I learned around eighth grade that taking like Tylenol or ibuprofen doesn't actually help you feel better. It just stops you from knowing you're in pain. I thought, well, that what, <laughs> what is the point of this? Right. But look at how many times we do that emotionally. Mm-hmm. So if a person is coming into your self-care space mm-hmm. um, that you've crafted, what could they expect to experience that would help them do some of the things that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Experience their, you know, their body, become embodied or just reconnect with themselves. Absolutely. So I think that... One, so for example, if this is happening in the middle of their work day, um, they will, one, get to have a break. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's one thing that I know I've been guilty of in the past is working an entire day without taking a break. Mm-hmm. And so they'll first get that break. Um, they're going to experience some nice soft lighting, um, some nice soft music to kind of help calm them a little bit. Um, They're going to actually have something to do with their hands. So if you're not used to sitting in stillness and sitting without moving and just resting, if you want to, you know, do something with your hands, either with a creative project or coloring or something like that, um, you're going to have a chance to do that. And that's another um, big thing for me is creativity when it comes to rest. Um, Have you ever read the book Sacred Space? Or I'm not um, Sacred Rest. I'm sorry. I have not. Um, It's awesome. Uh, Sandra Dalton is the author and she talks about there's seven different kinds of rest Hmm. and a creative rest is one of those those types and so um, for me I want to give people options for whatever resonates with them Um, there's also um, comfortable pillows so if you do want to lay down and rest you're invited to do that there's you know a comfortable space for you to do that Um, and then also really I think a lot of it is just about choice Mm. Talk about choice, girl. Yeah. So, like, not not necessarily having everything being so structured all the time, you know? Come in. Hey, you have an option to do this. You have an option to do that. You have an option to do this. And giving people that element of choice, I think, reinforces that safety factor mm-hmm. um, that they, they have some autonomy here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people realize it consciously or not, but when choice is not given to us, there is a natural defensiveness that rises up just because. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we walk into this space and it's like, oh, we're going to color. I don't like coloring. You could like coloring just fine. Mm -hmm. But there's just this natural defensiveness of you can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And so we find ourselves in spaces where we don't feel we have a lot of choice very often. Mm -hmm. And so I think giving choice is huge. Right. And like also within the space, I think that then... um, allows them to start practicing to say like hey like what is it that I want to do right now mm-hmm. like this is in my control and it I think starts to kind of build that muscle of like hey like what does my body feel like it needs what is my body telling me that it needs right now mm-hmm. what is my body telling me yes. such a huge question yes. so I was sitting thinking while you were talking I think there's also an element that happens when a person begins to reconnect with their bodies and begins to prioritize their Mm self-care, especially when that is not how they've lived their life before. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, what starts to happen is people start looking at them funny. And by funny, it's kind of like, well, what? Right? I want to make it, I want to put it out there that as you start to take care of yourself, when you have been other focused for so long and taking care of other people, 
some people are going to have to adjust. And that can be very, oh, very challenging yep. when we are people pleasers, when we are shapeshifters, when we have learned to survive. So again, this is not necessarily personality. I keep saying a lot of us, so many of us are walking around living out our trauma, calling it personality. Mm-hmm. And so we are, that's just how I am. More than likely is how you adapt it. Mm-hmm. And when your survival became dependent upon making sure that everyone around you is happy, this is not just going to be this easy thing that all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, I listen to this podcast. I'm going to start taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that's the first step. But there will be some people who are kind of like, um, excuse me, <laughs> what are you doing? Or what I've noticed is that for people who have good boundaries and good self-care, mm-hmm. those who don't like to label it selfish yep. um, or some other word that insinuates after all I've done for you, you can't do this for me mm-hmm. or not even for them. I sacrifice all this for other people. I do this. It doesn't matter what I got going on in my life and no, and it doesn't feel reciprocal. Mm -hmm. So my thing to those people, and by those people, I am one of those people a lot of times, um, is to listen to what's coming out of your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. All the sacrifices you make, all the things you do, and it's not reciprocal. Is it because maybe you shouldn't be doing all those things? So when we are around people who, like I said, have good boundaries, solid functional boundaries, who take care of themselves and who do not put their self-care and their bodies on the line for everyone around them, when that has been our whole world, we will distance ourselves from those people because we feel like we're not going to get from them what we need or things like that. And I'm just suggesting what would happen if instead of distancing from them, we learned from them. What if when someone told us no, instead of getting upset that they had the nerve to tell us no, we said, "Mm, I wonder what that's like Mm -hmm. to actually prioritize my life over someone else. So I just think, you know, as we're talking all this good stuff about self-care, it's important to note that it it will take time. Mm -hmm. It will take practice and it will take adjusting, not just for the person who is starting to prioritize their self-care, but also to the people who are around them and their families. So I thought that was important. Yeah. Um, have you, are you familiar with Joe Dispenza? Doctor? Yes. Yes. Um, one of the things that I love that he talks about is um, how our bodies, um, when we have certain certain responses and we, or emotional responses, um, our brains kick out these chemicals that are aligned with those responses. Our cells and our bodies are then bathed in those chemical and emotional responses. So all of our traumatic responses that we've had in the past are literally encoded into our genes. Mm -hmm. And so when we, you know, for me, my big thing is like binge eating. Mm -hmm. So when I, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to self-care. I'm not going to do binge eating. I'm not, you know, I'm going to be healthy. That's one thing. But then does my my body, it's going to take time for it to catch up to my mind Mm -hmm. because for so long that binge eating has been my response, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's where that grace and that patience comes in is that your body just needs to take time to really recode and get adjusted to the new chemical reactions that are going on in your brain. Yeah, you're so right. The example I use with a lot of my clients is I will ask them, what is their dominant hand? So I'll ask you, are you right or left hand dominant? I'm right hand. You're right hand Mm -hmm. dominant. And so if I said, um, Kara, from this moment forward, you can only write with your left hand. And you said, okay, you're willing to take up the challenge. 
And then I said, hey, write your name. What hand are you going to pick that pen up with? My right. Your right yeah. hand. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to say, hey, Kara, left hand. And you'll go, oh, okay. You'll switch it over to your mm-hmm. left. And oh, you'll try. And you'll, and, and it is not going to be legible. And it is not going to look the same as it did. And you're going to fumble with it. But you're going to keep trying. And then you're going to put it down. And then later today, you're going to go to write something. And what hand are you going to pick it up with? Right. Your right hand. Mm-hmm. Because you have so many years of experience building the muscle of being right hand dominant. It doesn't mean you cannot learn to be left hand dominant, but it will take a lot of intentionality, a lot of practice. And like you said, a lot of grace when you pick up that pin, that fork, that bat, whatever you have with your dominant hand, because it has been your dominant hand. And so I just think that's so important that we mm-hmm. are highlighting not just the great things about self-care, but also here are some of the things and the challenges that are going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing that I, I just wanted to touch on really quick with you that I appreciate is so um, last year, Kara invited me to her birthday party. <laughs> Um, Which was such an honor because while definitely I think we both enjoy each other's company and had like gone out to breakfast, we knew each other pretty peripherally, not a lot uh, directly. And so it was a a, a serious honor to be invited and Soul Palette, shout them out, shout them out. Um, They are a company that does um, painting, guided painting, but they come to you. Um, It is a black owned company and they're super awesome. Mm -hmm. So um, I come to this party, but I think the thing that struck me the most when I got there was Kara's intentionality of creating space for amazing black women. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like that is something worth talking about. Mm -hmm. So even if it's just how you curated your birthday party (laughs) guest list or just kind of this idea of creating space and cultivating the bridging of relationships and the bridging of the gap between black women. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had really a birthday celebration probably in over like five years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, this past December, when it came time for my birthday, I was like, you know what? Like, I had a really bomb year. I want to have a party to celebrate, you know, the great year that I had. But I want I want the vibe to be right. Like I, you know, I think sometimes when you are operating out of a space that's not authentic to you, you kind of do things that you think other people will enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, nah, none of that this year. So um, I was like, well, what do I want to do? I want to I want to create. And I want to be surrounded by dope black women. And I wanted there to be love. I wanted there to be conversation. I wanted there to be drinks. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to just... some good drinks. Yeah, <laughs> yes. You know, um, I wanted to be able to have my shoes off. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't want that pressure of wearing heels and having to dress up. Like, because none of that is me. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I just kind of went through my list and I was thinking about, you know, who are some women that I have had really, you know, meaningful conversations with? Who are some women that I know will bring a great energy to the space? Um, and who are who are some women that I know are going to talk to each other? Um, I, I was pretty intentional about the list. And that was actually kind of difficult for me because I'm also the kind of person that wants to include everybody. Mm-hmm. But for me, that was almost a practice in... Um, just being a little bit more discerning with the energy. Mm-hmm. 
And I think sometimes it can, in the effort to be inclusive, sometimes we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's time and space for that, right? So, um, I, I don't know. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, it was great. I, you know, I talk about this experience um, with people who are close to me. Um, I don't, I don't want to as much make it a product of my city where I grew up, Detroit, <laughs> but it definitely, that's part of my template. Mm-hmm. Um, and being, to be honest, since I haven't actually lived there since I was 18. Um, so we're going off of like some pretty young templates, but I just remember um, a lot of experiences of this feeling of competition, yep. this feeling of um, standoffishness, which I can now put in a completely different lens than I could that many years ago, mm-hmm. which is, I don't think these are personality traits that are showing up. I think these are trauma responses. Yes, this is survival yes. mode, mm-hmm. right? And so we learn as black women within certain environments, how to guard ourselves mm-hmm. against danger and threat. Mm-hmm. And so that looks like flocking for some, right? We get together with the people that we're with and no new friends, Hashtag no new friends. Why? Because we don't know you. What if you are unsafe? Right? This is where RBF, resting bitch face, I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from. And that's across all cultures, right? This neutral face, this stance of if I, if I can sit here and protect myself, then people will not. This is why you can see someone with a hardened face. And I've learned to just lean in and say, hey, how are you today? Mm-hmm. And those initial few moments are kind of like, fine. But once they realize, "Mm, maybe she's not going to hurt me or she's staying or she's not running away, what unfolds behind that very, very, very tough exterior are some of the most beautiful people Mm -hmm. that I've ever met. I mean, this happens a lot on the East Coast, (laughs) Uh, just in general, um, when I travel. Yeah, it's just like there's a protective mode. There's a survival mode that people go into. But once they can take a moment and and get underneath that, there really are some really, really beautiful people in the world. And But my template had been that of competition. And, and if not just competition, then me having to completely morph into something that I was not um, in order to fit into this group. And so what I can say is I came into this experience and that was not the case at all. Part is I've done a lot of work <laughs> on myself, you know, since um since I was that young girl and even beyond. But the environment and the people in the space, it was all just conducive. All these women coming together one for a common purpose to celebrate you. And I think a common you know, when people have a common goal or a common focus, that helps. We were all there to celebrate you. We were all there to create. No matter what level of ability we had or confidence in our ability to create, which again is why I shout out Soul Palette. So Brandon Hawkins was our lead artist. And it didn't matter what you came with, how much skill you had. There was a lot of laughter. It was a lot of fun. And it just, it reinforced my... um my belief that I can be around people and be authentically who I am and be appreciated for it and appreciate other people. Mm -hmm. And it really did spark this genuine desire in me to surround myself with black women, which I can honestly say just had not been 
you know, a desire that I had based on the experiences that I've had. So I just wanted to publicly say thank you, oh. you know, for your intentionality and for all of that. And then I had Soul Pally come to my birthday party a couple of weeks later because yeah. they are the bomb. They, they, they are everything, they're everything. <laughs> so I just genuinely appreciate that. So um, let us start wrapping up and yeah. asking you to tell us a little bit um, a fun fact, a little mm. known thing about you, something that just kind of creates a more holistic picture of who Kara is. Mm. Um, I'm a huge, huge music lover. Okay. Um, when I was younger, I used to want to be a singer. I can't sing a lick, but <laughs> um, I just knew I was going to be a singer. But um, my dad is a musician and I grew up around music. I was a dancer um, in high school. Um, so I'm a huge music lover. I'm obsessed with like Brazilian jazz and mm. all kinds of like, you know, niche, um, niche uh, genres and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I love music. Awesome. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, and so finally, how can people find you? So rather they're just looking to connect with you socially or they're like, I like the idea of these pop-up self-care spaces, yeah. you know, um, tell us a little bit about um, Lilac and Indigo, like how they would get in touch with you yeah. professionally and personally. Awesome. So um, if you're interested in either like a meditation class or a pop-up wellness room or if you just want to do a retreat, um, you can reach me um, by my website. So my website is lilacandindigo.com. So that's L-I-L-A-C-A-N-D-I-N-D-I-G-O.com. Um, you can uh, email me, hello at lilacandindigo.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram at lilac underscore indigo. Um, and you can like me on Facebook, Lilac and Indigo. Um, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so we will have her information inside of the show notes as well as um, a reference to the book Sacred Rest um, that she referenced in the podcast. We'll have all of that there for you. Uh, to all of my listeners, I thank you so very much for tuning in again. Please, if you need to reach me, you can uh, go to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We are on all the social media outlets. Don't forget we have our YouTube channel where every Thursday we put out a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to like, uh, review, and subscribe to the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, so don't forget to share. We have tons of awesome guests and awesome content. Until we connect again, be well. <laughs>